to a boat people. They came here with nothing. And being an immigrant coming here with no money, you kind of had to be entrepreneurial. I learned a lot from them through that. This is The Raise, where we take you behind the scenes into the capital raising journeys of startup founders. Some you may have heard of, others you need to hear about, and all of whom have been through it to close a raise. On the show, you'll learn how founders make the difficult decisions. Whether you're a founder yourself or you're simply interested in the fast-moving, innovative world of startups, this show is for you. I'm your host, Mylin Dang. I'm Managing Director of capital raising law firm Metis Law. For over a decade, I've worked with founders to raise capital so they can build businesses that make a lasting impact. Hello, founders and friends. Today, I'm chatting with my dear friend, Jade Ong. Jade is the co-founder of Atlas Trend and Elevate Super. Atlas Trend allows users to access global stock markets and to easily invest in emerging trends such as big data, clean disruption and online shopping. Elevate Super allows Australians to invest their superannuation funds into companies that support the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Both projects are providing returns that are exceeding the market. Jade is a former banker who spent over a decade in some of the world's leading investment banks before turning her hand to building something that would make a real impact. In this episode, you'll hear Jade share how she vetted her co-founders, how Atlas Trend won the holy grail to secure their first investors, and how a clearing considered pitch deck helped Atlas Trend close their seed round in record time. Let's dive in. Jade Ong, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Jade, your company is Atlas Trend. Can you give me your elevator pitch? Sure. So in a nutshell, it's a platform that makes it really easy for anyone to invest in long-term disruptive growth trends like big data, e-commerce, clean disruption. We do have a sister product as well called Elevate Super. And so that's a superannuation fund that focuses on competitive returns and positive contribution to the sustainable development goals. The common thread across both products and everything we do is utilising technology to open up access to thematic investing and sustainable investing. What's your big audacious dream for Atlas Trend and for Elevate? Our dream is utilising the technology that our team's developing and continuing to develop just to make life easier for investors and to invest in something that really understand and that aligns with their values. So what sort of returns are you getting for these portfolios and how does it compare to the general market? The the big data, the e-commerce trends, they've been around four, five, six years. For those trends, they've kind of shot the lights out and achieving more than 100% returns since we've launched. And then the Clean Disruption Fund, that's launched more recently, but over three years ago now, and that's been up almost 60% since we launched. But on average, for an investor, the average per annum return for those trends are in the mid-teens, which is way more than what you would get in a bank if you were just putting your money there in lazy cash. And it's in terms of the global share market index, it's outperforming those as well. Why was superannuation the next stage of progression for Atlas Trend? It came through initially from reverse inquiries as well. We always like to have the users lead 
our product in that sense. So we had investors who say, you know, got only a certain amount of money in terms of savings that I could invest in the funds, but I've got this whole amount in super and I really like what you're doing. Can I put my super with you? So the more inquiries we've got around that and just looking through as a team, our capabilities and then what was required, we felt that it was something we have the technology that we can easily adapt to that. Our team, we've got internal investments team that has started to build a strong track record with the managed funds and getting referrals from our investors to their families and friends who really like using it and wanting to invest in super with us as well. And then it was really just the regulatory framework that we needed to put around it and because it's a different framework to the managed funds. But, you know, we've already operated in the highly regulated financial services industry already. So it was already something that we had capabilities to do. So it was a natural progression. Jade, how did you come up with the idea for Atlas Trend? Chatting with my fellow co-founders. We've all worked in the corporate financial services industry in the past. Wanted to utilise the background that we had to do something more fun, more meaningful, with more purpose than, you know, the careers we were all in. And this kind of idea about thematic investing and investing in something that you understand or what you believe in and trying to make it more transparent just got talking and that's sort of how the whole business got started. So were these discussions taking place before you left corporate? It was so... I was on mat leave at the time. Kent and I worked together at Macquarie in London. He moved on to other roles and I stayed with Macquarie, transferred and I came back to Australia, ended up being there over nine years. We always kept in touch as ex-workmates and friends and one day the conversation just started and it's just it took a long time for me to actually leave the corporate world from when we first started talking. If I think talking to a lot of my friends, a lot of them were probably in the same position at that time, thinking, you know, you've been in a role for so long, you're so comfortable and getting paid relatively well. If you've got young kids, it's a huge risk to just get up and leave. So it did take a long time for me to make that decision. How did you make that decision ultimately? Who did you speak to what were you? What's what was going on in your mind as you were trying to break down that decision making process? I suppose I sat back and thought, you know, I've been in that role for over nine years. It can get quite stale, but then the opposite could happen as well. You can get quite comfortable and not leave. But I just felt like I wasn't really mentally challenged or learning enough new things. I wasn't really progressing that much. So there were three things I could have done. I could have stayed, worked harder, pushed harder, climb the corporate ladder within the same company. But looking, I guess, looking at the directors who were in the business and my bosses, et cetera, and I just thought, I don't think it's really me. Just starting at Macquarie at the beginning, I felt I'm a bit of an imposter and that's probably a common thing you hear from females. But I just felt, oh, it wasn't really me and do I actually see myself know, continuing down this path and I think you need a certain personality to want to do it. And I, I suppose for me as well, it's, I was very much in the minority. 
working in an industry that not only was I often in meeting rooms where I'm the only female, but the only Asian as well, and the only mum against all these other people who are, not that I'm not an ambitious, but I have other priorities in my life that are important as well. And just, I just really do enjoy the politics and you do unfortunately have to play a bit of that. And so it just didn't feel like it was something that I wanted to do. And the other path, I suppose, secondly, I could have changed jobs, but then I just thought, what would I do if I changed jobs? The idea of going to another financial company doing the same thing wasn't really that appealing. Why would I do that? I just stay here, more comfortable here. And then thirdly, just do something completely different was another opportunity. It was scary, but it was exciting. And when this opportunity came up, I guess I thought long and hard about the different paths and where I see myself 10 years from now. Do I still want to be here? What do I want to do? And you never know exactly. Even like you, you start out at university, you don't really know where you end up going. And yeah, I just felt like it, was, it sounded really exciting. I, I need to get out of my comfort zone. I thought it would do good for me. The idea of being able to build something from scratch and you being able to actually shape it in a way that you can utilise what you've learnt in the past and then build it from feedback and other things. The difference is every little thing you do, you can actually see the outcome of it. You're not working behind the scenes on pitch decks or other things that might not come into fruition. It's like you, you make the decision on where you want to drive it and then you see the outcome of it however and it was quite an exciting eye-opener I suppose to realize how big the startup community was and that this huge startup community actually existed like there was nothing I ever thought about and I think I really felt that I learned so much more and I met so many more people since leaving and it really not only helped with career progression but personal development as well you're not sitting in meetings thinking I need to say this because my manager wants me to say it or it comes through that, you know, you might be seen as you're lacking confidence because that might not be exactly what you believe in but you've got to pitch it this way whereas now it's like you can be yourself and you can be authentic and you can say what comes to your mind. It's really up to you. It was exciting and scary at the same time. <laughs> Jade, you're a first-generation immigrant like me. You obtained a double degree in law and commerce at the prestigious Sydney University, which is actually where we met. For the stereotypical first-generation Vietnamese family, you were a textbook, in quotation marks, successful child, right? How did your parents feel about you leaving a stable career and working on a startup? They, they're always very supportive. Having Asian parents, there's always this ideal that I'm sure other Asian background people can relate to. So... Yeah, they always wanted one of their kids to study medicine, become a lawyer, become a doctor, those typical pathways, and obviously none of us did that. <laughs> They're supportive anyway because it's not their ideal thing, but we've, I guess I'm very lucky to have parents that wouldn't hold us back in what we want to do. It, it may not be their ideal role or ideal situation, but they still gave us enough freedom to make our own choices and you live by it. You know, I, I consciously didn't do the prerequisites that was required to study medicine, just really consciously, so I couldn't have 
got into it anyway. And so I guess with this decision as well, it was my decision. I don't know if you know this, but my mum into my into my late 20s was still saying, oh, I wish you had become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, do you come from an entrepreneurial family? I guess you could say that in a sense. I mean, my background, my parents probably similar to yours. We were boat people, one of the early ones coming to Australia. They kind of came here with nothing. And so being an immigrant coming here with no money, you kind of had to be entrepreneurial in that sense or you just continually work in a, as a labourer, you know, if you don't have any other skills. And they did start out that way, but they managed to build up their business in, I guess, the rag trade, if you like. Yeah, I guess I learned a lot from them through that and just the how difficult it was to have your own business and have ups and downs, but you do what you can. They were fortunate enough to have made it through in the sense that they were able to have a pretty relatively successful business to be able to provide for us and see us through education. And I guess the whole reason why they left the country and so for us, it's sort of just not wanting to disappoint them, but trying the best that we could. So it's not a wasted effort in leaving their home country to come here. I forgot that your family were in the rag trade, like mine. Were you? Were, did you have to work in the business when you were seven years old, like I did? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny because we had a team the other day and living COVID life on Zoom for team meetings, one of our topics was talking about our first jobs. I wasn't at school yet. I was probably like four and my first job was cutting labels. <laughs> so, you know, those tags that you have on the back of your clothes that tell you what size? Yes. Or what washing instruction? I did that too. And they come in these rolls. <laughs> I'll be there like there's little lines where mum would tell me to cut on this line and then someone would come over and say, oh, she's like messing stuff up. She goes, no, no, she knows to cut on the line. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I, I could do that and we all sewed in the middle of watching the Australian Open and in our school holidays we'd go and help. I can relate to that 100%. That was my childhood as well. <laughs> Jade. Your co-founders, Kent and Kevin, so you, you knew them through work. How did you come to the decision that they were the right people to go into business with? Because that's a completely different dynamic. Yeah, you always hear about partnerships and that goes sour. I think it was it's actually really hard to find people that you could partner with. With Kent, we've worked together before. So we've had that working relationship and we knew how each other worked and how our style of working and we could get along as friends but as colleagues. With Kevin, Kent actually knew Kevin separately. They used to work together at JP Morgan. When Kent mentioned Kevin to me, I'm like, that name sounds really familiar. I think I went to the same primary school as him, <laughs> just coincidentally. Right. And he was my one of my brother's friends. So it was um, quite coincidental, but it was kind of nice to have that connection that it's someone you know, not someone you know really well that you kept in touch with, but at least there was that connection and you knew them, who they were and their background. And I think it was just starting to work together. We all found, we're all here for the same reason. We've all got young kids 
We've all had similar backgrounds and we're all at that point in our life where we wanted to do something that was more meaningful, more impactful. Work is very important, but flexibility was also very important. And that that's something that's never changed, you know, even before COVID. The funny thing is when we spoke to even team members that joined since then, we're like, what are our values? What's important? And one of them is flexibility. And that's something that we had in our team even before COVID. We all are similar in the sense that we didn't enjoy the politics. That's one reason why we wanted to get away from the corporate world. We just wanted to do what we enjoy, just giving your best shot. You know, lots of businesses fail. There's a high percentage of businesses that fail. But if you're there, you're giving it your best shot, you're doing something that you're really passionate about when you're trying to make a difference, hopefully things work out, but you've all got the same mentality and you're all there for the same reasons. I'd like to talk about your cap raising journey, Jade. Atlas Strange raised $2.8 million in its seed round. Were you pre-revenue at the time? We, we were pretty much at that time. That was our first external raise. And prior to that, like many startups, the early rounds were founders, family, friends, associates. And so that, that $2.8 million raised was our first external raise. And we were quite lucky to have done it ourselves through our networks and complete it quite quickly. But it was very early stage in the business. Yes. So what was the nature of the conversation with investors? How were you explaining why they should invest in Atlas Trend at such an early stage in the business? One of the key things they look at is the team. One aspect that's lots of investors focus on even in the early rounds and even in the later rounds and discussions we're having today sort of the team and they will look at how passionate you are about what you're doing got to believe in it a passion to drive it and also be able to see the growth path for the business that's important as well so you look at even much larger businesses than ours where they're not profitable or it's only starting to get revenue, but a lot of the investors want to look at what's your plan for the business, what's your growth path, how you're going to get there, and how passionate you are in trying to achieve that to be able to make it happen. Did you have a lead investor? In that round, we did. That round, we were really lucky to close it in a record one month, which is unbelievable, I think, and that was all done ourselves because we were lucky to have worked in the industry for quite a number of years and had networks already. Um, so all that was from personal networks or contacts or their introductions. So we did have introductions from our network to lead investors that took up a large portion of that. One month is definitely not something to measure by because Capital raisings take much longer, as we found. It was just right time, right place, and the connections you have at that time, which made it all come together. Was it your strategy to have a lead investor, or did that happen by accident? We we did want to. I think with any capital raise, it's always very helpful if you have a lead investor or cornerstone investor that really believes in what you're doing. You know, ideally in the process, if you could start off with identifying who they might be and approaching them and getting some kind of commitment from them first, it definitely helps in closing the round and making it easier for other investors to 
to either follow or get their heads around what you're doing. And were there specific characteristics that you were looking for in a lead investor? Yeah, there's different types of investors. You could have the passive investors and that's great when being a startup you're strapped for cash and just want some funding. We try to focus on investors that could really help the business, so more strategic investors, particularly through later discussions as well that we have with other investors. It's trying to bring in, depending at that point in your business, where you want to be headed and looking for strategic investors ideally that either have the background and experience or the networks to help open doors to help you achieve your vision and your growth plans. What was the most difficult question that you were asked by the prospective investors? I mean, for us, because we've got two parts of the business, I think that's probably one thing that is quite interesting, but also what we struggled with trying to be able to articulate it well. You get in reverse, you could get asked those sorts of questions. So because we've got the Atlas Trend Funds and then we've got the super product and we're very focused on our tech as well. And so what we found is through the pitch decks, we iterate it so many times just to try and bring through a clearer message because in the early conversations, a difficult question is, so what are you? You've got so many things going on. What is it that you're doing? You really need to be really clear and tight on your messaging and what's the common thread or what's the thing that brings everything you're doing together could have different elements of the business. I mean, there's lots of businesses that do lots of different things, but what's your key core underlying message that you've got to be able to put that through succinctly? It takes a lot of iterations of pitch decks to get it right. Once the raise process actually started, what did your day-to-day look like? How much time were you spending in the business versus working on the raise? Well, for that particular early raise we talked about, it's almost full-time because we're such a small team. We just wanted to get it done as soon as we can just so we could move on with the business. And in that scenario, we were quite lucky that we managed to get it done. We've had later, you know, you're always fundraising as a startup and we've had later rounds where we we realised how draining it is on the team and how much it takes you away from your day-to-day business because not only are you working on pitch decks, you're always having meetings, you're always preparing for things and DD, so it's it's all consuming and it takes you away from being able to grow. You don't want to halt your business as well, so it helps to bring in help. So we've had companies that help us with the capital raising process. It's great. It frees up our time a bit in some of what they do we can spend the time focusing on the business a bit more. You're still quite involved and it, as, as founders, you, people always want to talk to you, so you're going to be involved and it's going to be time-consuming. But you also get to meet really interesting and great people along the way as well and that's what I quite enjoy about it. You never know where a conversation leads. They might not invest in you today. They may think about you later on and they introduce you to partnerships or other, there's other angles in terms of where they could help and that's happened to us as well. So yeah, I think it's, it is draining. <laughs> it does take up a lot of your time, but then there's rewards as well along the way. What was the most surprising thing about the cap raising process for you? You never know where you will end up going. I guess like for that example of that 2.1, I mean 2.8 million raise we spoke about, 
it was more than what we were targeting. So, I mean, in that scenario, it's a nice surprise that we had more demand. And I think as a founder as well, there's always a question of do you raise too much too early and be diluted early or do you take the money that's there? And then some of the other investors that invest along the side, they're like, if you've got someone's trying to give you money, you should take it because it's very, very difficult to raise money. But you've just got to balance it out, I think, with where you are in your business and how much dilution you're willing to take. So in that round, did you end up taking all the money that was on the table? We did in the end, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Jade, what's one thing you can share with other founders who are thinking about raising capital or are embarking on the capital raising journey? One of the really important things, I know people talk about it all the time and it's probably said to death, but a really good pitch deck. I think it's just so important because people could take a meeting or not from it. They can read it a lot into what kind of business you are and how you are just from it. So being able to invest the time in, um, even when you're not capital raising, like for any business, just having a deck there helps you summarise your business in a clear, short, succinct way with a clear vision and test it out on lots of different people because you're so consumed in the business, you're so close to it. When you put it together, it might make a lot of sense to you and you think it's clear, but when you test it with other people, they'll ask you hard questions and you'll realise, okay, it's not up to scratch, I need to go and rework it. I think through the capital raising process, the pitch deck we started with at the time we launched the raise evolves and just from feedback and iterating and improving it and it's, it's an, uh, I guess, an ongoing journey of trying to sit down and really think about it and having it as clear and short and succinct as possible and what you're doing and your vision is important. So aside from the vision in the pitch deck, what other elements would you say are key elements to include or to get, get right or, or make attractive, I suppose, in a pitch deck? But I think the, the important bits that from the investors anyway that we speak to that they focus on is one, you're being able to articulate your business very clearly and your vision, which we mentioned, but then also who's the team behind it, what's their experience, background, how that's relevant, then showing the traction that's always really important. Ideally, I know it's hard for a business that's just started and just has a concept, but if you, you know, there's different ways you could show traction at various stages, whether that's just feedback or any research that you've done, but where you can just show, you know, the number of customers you've got, the number of partnerships you've signed, the, I guess that helps them, you know, see the growth trajectory. Great advice, Jade. Before we go, we're going to do something that I call the quick six, which is six rapid fire questions. What's your favourite work from home, lunch or snack? Oh, I think it's my mum's cooking, actually, to be honest right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's she making for you? She makes this caramel, caramelised meat, caramelised pork that I quite like. And uh, a sour soup, a Vietnamese sour soup. That's quite good too. You're very lucky, Jade. They're two of my favourite dishes, <laughs> very Vietnamese dishes. What's a great book that you have read recently? I've read a book I've got right here in front of me, actually. I think it's quite 
popular leaning Michelle Sandberg. I did get given it's I know you didn't ask it, but I've got given this really great book uh, as a Chris Kringle present for my team, A Life on Our Planet by David Attenborough. And I'm really excited to dig into that. A documentary or podcast that you've watched or listened to recently that you would recommend? Well, that's an easy one because I listened to yours the other day. <laughs> so I highly recommend this and that's totally an easy no-brainer. <laughs> Thank you, Jade. I will uh, put some money into a red packet for you a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most useful good or service that you've purchased in the last 12 months that costs $100 or less? It's a bit daggy, but Something that we've been doing a lot as a family is Rubik's Cubing. My son's been really into it and so he's taught the whole family. It's it's a good mental stimulating thing that you can do to kill time but also a good fun family thing as well. <laughs> Probably not the answer that you expected. No, but he's a bit of a genius at the Rubik's Cube, isn't he? He, he really enjoys it and he's got a group of cousins and friends that love it as well so I think that helps. What's on heavy rotation on your music playlist right now, Jade? <laughs> My kids love musicals or any shows that has singing in it. So we've gone from having to listen to Pitch Perfect to now it's the high school musical. <laughs> Jade, this has been lots of fun. We've known each other for many, many years and it's wonderful to learn more about your story today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I'm very grateful for you. Thanks, Mylene. Thanks for having me and enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to The Raise, a show that takes you deeper into founder stories about capital raising. We'll have all the contact details for Jade, Atlas Trend and Elevate Super in our show notes. If you'd like to learn how to raise capital like a guru, like Jade, join our Termsheet Negotiation Masterclass. To register, head to termsheet.guru. That's T-E-R-M-S-H-E-E-T dot G-U-R-U. This podcast is brought to you by Termsheet Guru. Raise capital successfully and faster with Termsheet Guru so your startup can make an impact. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Raise, be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, share the love and leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Mylin Dang and we'll be back next episode with another deep dive into a founder's capital raising journey.